Good morning. Please be seated. To my dear friend and brother, your dean, Dr. Luke Powery, except for my wife, who accompanies me, my wife of 20 years, I have no greater friend than Luke Powery. We were seminary roommates for a short period now, having said that, he is not responsible for what I say this morning. <laughs> I'm also happy to be with you this morning because 52 years ago, the late Dean Evans Earl Crawford, my immediate predecessor at Howard, preached from this pulpit. One of few African Americans to do so in those days. So I am especially happy to be among you this morning. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my strength, and my redeemer. Amen. Our stories matter. And the clothing of culture always matters and shapes our historical reality. Our stories matter, that is, if our concern is the gospel. They matter. They must matter if the story of salvation refracted through the lens of Christian faith is to be consequential in this current political environment. A political environment that is defined or described through the lens of a collage of narratives that rival one another for top billing and for cultural swagger rights. We cannot talk about reconciliation, inclusivity, equity, or hum human progress if our particular stories don't matter. It is always wrongheaded and naive to think that historically marginalized groups in North American communities don't shoulder inequitable burdens in a racialized society. To say I don't see color is to ignore another's field of perception, one's communal shaping, and one's rightful share in God's economy. And so I'm convinced that more than ever, we need the help of others to help us see Jesus rightly. Christian huddling won't help us to see Jesus and certainly does nothing to promote the genuine pursuit of beloved community. Awareness of God's concern for wellness, human dignity, and freedom in a less than perfect world accompanies my preaching task this morning. Nothing more, nothing less. So I come to this service of worship to wrestle with the, the, the lamentation, Lamentations text 
already read in your hearing, needing to know what hope looks like in an age of compassion fatigue, conspicuous consumption, political malfeasance, and deadly violence. And so this morning, I want to talk about peoplehood and try to deal with the question or raise the question, what makes a people? When the kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonian Empire, along with the crumbling walls came rupture of tribal culture and customs. As it did then and does today, forced migration compels ruptured communities to take stock. What carries cultural permanence and what gets reconstituted from one generation to the next within a cultural family helps us to see that we are at our best when we recognize that our creaturely identity and divine potential is bestowed by a benevolent creator. Our Lamentations text this morning is instructive for lamenting and disoriented people. Instructive for people who are attempting to build community in exilic situations. Instructive for people seeking to find hope in their distress. For a group survives only under adverse commitments and conditions when it is able to see who they truly are. What we do with the narratives we inherit determines how we see God. How lonely sits the city that was once full of people. Like a widow, she's become a vassal nation. She weeps bitterly, goes into exile with suffering and the promise of enduring hard servitude. The roads mourn, the priests groan, the girls grieve, their foes enslaved, enemies prosper, no perceptible respite on the horizon. And the divine justification, wait for it, the Lord has made Judah suffer for the multitude of her transgressions. The opening of the book of Lamentations recounts the mood of a people, of a people who sit among the ruins of Judah's most fortified city, Jerusalem. Babylonian siege warfare, King Nebuchadnezzar's slow and steady economic strangulation strategy precipitates the breach in Jerusalem's walls. Jerusalem, a city once commercially vibrant by 597 BC, found its city walls raised, its temple accoutrements torched, and attendance at its pilgrimage festivals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, and the Festival of Booths, of Booths brought to a halt. And such was a sure death blow to God's divinely beloved people, indeed of its most promising minds. And creative artists, the forced migration of Judah's elites to Babylon marks an historic turning point for an apostate nation. In exile, they find themselves calling down curses on their Babylonian captors. 
and Babylon's Edomite mercenary militia. Psalm 137 becomes a a vengeful incantation amidst the dark realities of war. In fact, what Israel recalls most palpably is not their feet blistering trek to Babylon, but the impalement of its men and lacerated wombs of mothers in past genocidal wars, wars waged to close off their future. What else could warrant the ghastly retort? O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back for what you've done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rocks. I'm an audiobook fanatic. More than turning the, the page, I will, I will allow certain novels to grip me uh, audibly. I particularly enjoy those read by narrati- narrators who get the feeling sense of a story. Such is the case of Daniel Black's searing novel, The Coming. Black transports readers into the holds of the Hope, the Lord Ligonier, and the good ship Jesus. Slave ships traversing the Middle Passage. These ships came first for farmers, healers, orators, artisans of West Africa. They stole away everything that made us strong, Black narrates. They captured us not merely because the enslavers were cunning and militarily formidable. We were captured because we became self-absorbed, forgot to respect all life forms. We spoke parables but didn't embrace their wisdom. We were taught the way of harmony and balance, yet often we measured our worth not by what we had but by what our neighbors had and the disease of greed spread among us. We, in short, forgot who we were and thus contributed to our own demise. How a group survives under adverse conditions in crippling moments brought on by ease and moral laxity helps it to see and know who they truly are. And sadly, to see and know how vulnerable they can become. This was Judah's circumstance, and so there by the banks of the river Euphrates, lamenting over past glory lost, destruction of their homeland, Israelite exiles wept before their captors. Captors who asked them to perform sanctuary-suited songs, songs of Zion. But how could they? How could they sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. Now, now I'm no conspiracy theorist. I did not jump on the Y2K propaganda bandwagon as a teenager. But my conscience says we who occupy empire citizenship in these yet to be United States must stay woke which is postmodern parlance that says we must resist the narcotizing effects of do-nothingness while the city 
contents itself with wearing the garments of sleek contentment. No, I'm no alarmist, I would remind you, but these dystopian future movies don't seem so far-fetched, do they? Not anymore. I, I cannot say I'm not concerned most nights. I sleep well. Rarely do I have panic attacks. Now, I don't want to speak too soon, though. This sermon's not done yet. And every preacher fears the online archives if there is nothing consequential to say. As far as I know, there are no do-overs in Duke Chapel. And a good bit of the manuscript still remains. Oh, the pressure. But the matter of staying awake is not insignificant. No, it's not, not insignificant, not when juxtaposed to the hard facts of our times. Times are dark. And I cannot be convinced that what we are currently seeing in this nation can be unseen. Nor can I be convinced that we humans have played no part in the collapsing walls of our anchoring institutions. We have contributed much to the death of our nation. And Americans have much to atone for as I examine our collective futures. Jonathan Franzen's article in the New Yorker titled, What If We Stop Pretending? rings the conscience. He asserts, the climate apocalypse is coming, and to prepare for it, we need to admit that we can't prevent it. If you're younger than 60, you have a good chance of witnessing the radical destabilization of life on Earth, massive crop failures, apocalyptic fires, imploding economies, epic flooding, hundreds of millions of refugees fleeing regions made uninhabitable by extreme heat and permanent drought. If you're under 30, Franson writes, you're all but guaranteed to witness it. If he's right, and I don't think he's wrong, his, his deductions seem fair enough to me. If we care about the planet, he continues, there are two ways to think about this. We can keep on hoping that catastrophe is preventable and feel even more frustrated and enraged by the world's inaction. Or we can accept that disaster is coming and begin to rethink what it means to have hope. Forbearance no more. No longer can Israel rely on God's unconditional blessing of presence. The Davidic covenant will soon give way to another for God's chosen people, one with if-then clauses. Exile will be educative and painfully so. I want to suggest to you that our God just might be tired of us. And divine mercy is the only refuge to which we can run. What, I, what I'm saying to you this World Communion Sunday is that we each have a nation within ourselves that will always be at war with God's good purposes for our lives. 
And if that nation refuses to die the death it needs to die, that nation's walls will crumble and hope will have been forfeited. Siege warfare exacts a toll. It suffocates the very resources upon which we rely. And in a figurative sense, paradoxically, suffocation has to in some way bring to rubble the very anchors of our human foundations. It has to topple our protected citadels of concern so that we can live. How are we to sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How can residents of blighted U.S. cities where the gerrymanderous political cunning and practices of eminent domain collude to manipulate voting processes and feed the materialistic imagination of unprincipled investors, investors who place profit over people. How are they to sing joy songs in the face of property seizure and high rents? Well, for Bill and Melinda Gates, making water-free septic systems and making sure diarrhea doesn't claim the lives of the next generation of God's beloved in so-called s-hole countries of color. Whether one deems what they are doing through their foundation as ministry or not, capitalistic cultures can only begin to atone for their sins of overreaching and commercial exploitation through entering such scenes of deadly reality and offer life-giving resources. What makes a people? concern about human suffering. Gone is the relevance of sending missionary teams to impoverished countries to give children Bible tract wielding cross-cultural experiences. Gone is that day if justice acts that are actually bringing resources to support life is not the end goal to a nation once brimming with life with its own brand of exceptionalism, now sitting as a lonely widow, declares the poetic sage of the Book of Lamentations. The word of the Lord that God offers to an exiled people is to do that which supports life. And there is no starker picture of this than what is recorded in Jeremiah 29 where the prophet Jeremiah exhorts the covenant community to build, to plant, to pray, to intermarry, and to seek the face of God, to survive. Survival makes a people a people. At an appointed time, homecoming will commence for the Babylonian exiles, and part of the good news is that the work of rebuilding collapsed culture will already have been conditioned within the community at the soul level. What makes a people a people? Access to that which the earth yields makes a people, since the earth belongs to God. Imperialistic agendas tied to homecomings cannot and will not promote human flourishing. What makes a people? Life does. Life supports life, and no life is beyond the reach of dignity and divine love. The nation within us 
that takes from life what is needed to sustain life, having no reparational apparatus for righting wrongs, is a nation marching in step with the funeral procession to hear her own parting words. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, what makes a people? The mercy of God on human community makes a people. The love of people for the sake of our collective futures, irrespective of religious or racial tribe or however one wants to self-identify, makes a people. That's what it means to give witness to a promise-bearing creator who expects something great from us. This is what it meant for Jesus the Christ, the cosmic dweller, to come to a disturbing world for the purpose of remaking society. Forging a random of holy kinship with revelatory power to teach us how to lament. Lament together in a world that is primarily what it is because of sin and negligence due to humanity's misuse of freedom. And no, we must not embrace the collapse of life's cultural anchorings without simultaneously holding on to our very real expectation that there is good news in not so good times. And that good news of God's loving kindness in chapter 3 is never satisfied to gloss over the painstaking reality of a broken exile community which had forgotten their God in chapter 1 and 2. What the good news will redound to is vividly captured in the poet's plain seeing and recollection of God's love and faithfulness to God's own promise, the promise to reconcile community to God's self. And it's extraordinarily personal. The poet's declaration not only takes community in account, but insists that his own personal testimony matter. But this I call to mind, he says, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in the Lord. The Lord will not reject forever. Although God causes grief, God will have compassion according to the abundance of God's steadfast love. For the love of the Lord never ceases. So let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Great is God's faithfulness. Great is God's faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with God. God changes not God's compassions. They fail not as God has been. God forever will be morning by morning. New mercies we see. All we have needed, God's hands have provided. Great is God's faithfulness. Pardon for sin and a peace that endures God's own dear pleasure to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all ours with 10,000 beside. Great is God's faithfulness. Great is God's faithfulness. Great is God's faithfulness, faithfulness, Lord, unto us. If we have no peace in this moment, 
to use the words of Mother Teresa, then it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. But I want to push her sentiments a step further to say if we have no hope in this moment, then it is because we have forgotten that we belong to God.